Would you pray with me? God, it is just so good to be together this morning and to sing songs that worship you and praise you and just to be reminded of your love for us. God, we thank you for your goodness in our lives. This morning, God, as we open your word, I just ask that you would teach all of us. Teach me, God, uh, what you would have us to learn so that we can live lives like this song said, so that we can grow deeper in our love for you, so that we can follow you wherever you would lead us. That's our prayer this morning, God, in the name of Jesus who loves us. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, it is my guess this morning that every single person in this room has been deeply loved by someone in your life. Even just saying that, my guess is that there's the face of someone that pops into your mind, probably a parent or a spouse. I saw some of you when I said that, just look at the person beside you, either to say thank you or, yeah, you should. Um, Love me that way. It may be a kid, it may be a grandkid, it may be a really close friend who has loved you that way. They're the kind of person who just hangs in there with you over the long haul. You've got this kind of a relationship where you just forgive each other when you hurt or wrong each other. You know, that kind of a love, that kind of a relationship uh, puts up with the irritating traits that we all have even though we think we don't, right? It's that kind of a love that will forgive. It's that kind of a love that puts up with all the smells and noises that we have, all the quirks and whims, all the warts and bumps and bruises that we have as human beings. And if we're lucky enough, I honestly believe we'll be blessed with maybe a handful of people in our lifetime who love us that way. And amazing as that kind of a love can be, I believe that the Bible teaches that that love pales in comparison to the way that God loves us. The Bible tells us that when we were utterly unlovely and unlovable, God's love found us. When we were in the muck, and the mess of our lives. God found us and loved us and saved us. That's an amazing love. The Apostle Paul, for that reason, prays for us and says, I just pray that you would have the power to understand, as all of God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep God's love is for you. It's like there's no boundaries, no limit, no possible way to measure how much God loves you. And he goes on to say, not only do I want you to understand it, I want you to experience the love of Christ. And then he throws in this caveat. (laughs) But really, it's too great to fully understand. After a lifetime of following Jesus, I would have to agree. I don't know that any one of us is really capable of fully understanding and appreciating the richness of God's love. Now, in spite of how it sounds, 
the talk that we're going to go through this morning, the things we're going to think about, aren't really about the love of God. That's going to come a few weeks down the road in this list of virtues we're looking at. I only mention God's love because godliness, being like Jesus in our character, is what God wants to love us into. It is the end point of God's divine love. I think that's why Ephesians, that passage goes on to say that once God's love grabs a hold of us, we will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. God does extend his grace to us. He accepts us just as we are, just as we are in the muck and the mire. And there he forgives us. But the story doesn't end there, thankfully. He doesn't leave us in the muck. In his love, God helps us become what we were meant to be. His love, day by day, his feisty, relentless love, is changing us, restoring us, cleaning us up inside and out. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you this morning. We are in this series where we're taking a look at 2 Peter, the first uh, few verses of chapter 1, which lays out seven ancient and compelling virtues. And Peter says that if we'll learn to live by these virtues in our daily lives, that they'll help us get the life that we long for, a life where we will know God intimately and we'll experience the freedom that God promises us in our lives. And so every week we've been taking a look at one of these virtues in detail and figuring out how we can implement that in our daily life. And suffice it to say, when it comes to this virtue of godliness that we're going to talk about today, there are a lot of obstacles in our life to learning to live like Jesus every single day. When we enter into this relationship with Jesus, in the blink of an eye, God forgives our sins. He erases all of our past and he welcomes us into his family. But the idea of living like Jesus every day, that takes a lifetime. Last week we talked about perseverance. We talked about that specific virtue of standing your ground, refusing to turn tail and run when the Christian life gets hard or at some points it just gets boring and not exciting at all. And we talked about the idea of sticking it out, not out of stubbornness or pride or stupidity. We stick it out because we're confident that this is the only road that will lead us home. There is nowhere else to turn and there is no one else to turn to in this life. And I think perseverance comes where it does in this list of virtues right before godliness. Because if we desire to be godly in our lives, it is going to take all the time and all the endurance that we have to pursue it. I want us to uh, take a look at this passage from 2 Peter again. It's good to just reread it and recenter ourselves on what Peter said as we dive in today. So Peter begins by introducing himself and then jumps in. He says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith 
as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you might participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness. The word Peter uses here for godliness is used throughout the New Testament in a variety of situations. It also at various points is translated holiness. And it describes a life that is completely devoted to God and his purposes. Another simpler way to say it would be that if you're godly, it means that you are God-centered in everything you say, in everything that you do in your life. Now, we just throw this caveat in at the beginning. Nobody ever is going to get that 100% right. And so when you find people in Scripture that are called godly, that's true of them. So over in the book of Acts, you find this account of a man named Cornelius that Peter was sent to visit. And Cornelius was called a godly man. Doesn't mean he was perfect. Doesn't mean he was sinless. It just means that more often than not, he was living life the way that God desired. And so the question for us today when we think about godliness is not how do we reach perfection? How do we become like God in everything that we do? But how do we make progress towards that? And I just think in general, that's a helpful question in our spiritual growth. Not only how do we get perfect at something, but how do we make progress? Because the perfection question just sets us up for failure. So there's a passage in Peter's first letter that I think is especially helpful in getting a grasp on what it means to move forward in living every day in a godly way. That's what I want us to dig into today. Peter writes in 1 Peter 3, In your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that you have. But do it with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Godliness starts, I think, with this dogged determination in our heart. A healthy, growing relationship with Jesus begins with two very fundamental decisions. It starts the day that we accept Jesus into our lives. We accept his grace and his forgiveness, what God offers us through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And I know that people struggle sometimes with that simple decision. They struggle with the idea of who Jesus was, his life, his work, his ministry, his death and resurrection. And that's okay. We have to wrestle that through, come to a point where we can believe and accept that. I know that other people wrestle with the simple idea of personally having to ask for forgiveness. All of that's encompassed in that initial decision. 
But the idea of godliness rests really on the second decision that we make. And I think on a practical level, it's a lot harder. It's the decision to let Jesus be, as Peter writes, the Lord of our life. To put that in language that we might use every day, it's the decision to allow Jesus to have authority and power over everything in our lives. That is a tougher decision, I think, to make and to live out. That's where that dogged determination comes in. Because most of us are really independent people when it comes down to it. We fight against the idea of giving anyone control over anything in our lives. We fight against giving people control over or authority over decisions, over the smallest things in our life. But Peter says here, if we want to be godly, if we want to behave like Jesus in our lives, our, if we want our speech, if we want our actions, if we want our thinking to be like Jesus, a fundamental decision we have to make is giving over control of our lives to Jesus. Because the invitation from Jesus isn't simply for forgiveness. It's for making him the one who leads and controls the decisions in our life. So stop and think. All of us have to think about this this morning. How do we go about the everyday aspects of our life? The big decisions and the small ones. Do we live our lives in a way that we simply tell God what we're going to do and then ask Him to bless it? I'm guilty of that at times. Or do we lay our life in front of God and ask Him to direct us, ask Him to guide us, show us what to do, and follow His leading? To allow Jesus to be the one who leads and guides our life means that what He desires always always takes precedent in our life. It takes precedent over our prejudices, over our emotions, over our upbringing, and even our opinions. All of those things have to be set aside if they stand in the way of Jesus and what he desires in our life. That's what Peter means when he says, revere Christ as Lord. Right on the heels of that determination, Peter says godliness requires a change in our behavior. He says always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks the reason for the hope that you have. Now it's different than the behavior we were just talking about, which is everyday surrendering control. Peter's talking about here that when we allow that to happen, when God's directing our lives, people are going to be, begin to notice the change. Peter's saying, when that change happens, when we become godly people, godly people arouse curiosity simply by the way they live. Your life will begin to provoke questions. People are going to start to wonder about you because you're different. Some of you are already different, okay, granted. Granted. But you're going to be different now for a good reason. 
There's just going to be something about you. Your life and the changes in it can't be accounted for because of the usual suspicions and explanations. And I love what Peter says here. He says, the difference can only be accounted for by one word. Hope. Hope. Godly people live in hope and bring hope to everyone around them. They bring hope into situations that are normally filled with fear or worry or discouragement or disappointment. And when everybody else around you begins to complain or worry or argue or panic, godly people embrace hope. And Peter's clear about where that hope springs from. He says, your faith and your hope are centered in God. Just like we talked about last week with perseverance, our hope is not based on the outcome of our circumstances. Our hope is not that God's going to get us out of this, that everything is going to work out okay in our lives. Our hope is based in God's nature. Our hope is based in God's character. Our hope is based in God's faithfulness. We have hope because we know that God's understanding of our circumstance is much broader than ours. We have finite knowledge. God sees the big picture, and so we trust Him. And we have hope. Peter says, Godly people live lives so filled with hope that they stand out as unique in tough times. And the people around them can't help but ask questions. And when that happens, Peter says, be ready. Be ready to tell them about your hope. There is an incredible irony that underlies what Peter is writing here that gets lost to us. And I just mention it this morning because I know that some of you are facing really tough circumstances in your life. They were too. The Christians to whom Peter is writing were being hunted down, hounded, persecuted by the Romans. Their only crime that was getting them killed was their faith in Jesus. They lived in daily fear of the Roman government. And Peter's encouragement to them was just simply to say, your hope is what sustains you. Your hope is what strengthens you. Your hope will make you stand out as peculiar odd, different, in a good way. And so when somebody asks you about your hope, Peter says, don't get all tongue-tied. Don't be embarrassed to talk about it. Don't lay it off on something else in your life. When people say, why are you so hopeful? Don't say, well, yeah, I mean, I did start a high-fiber diet. I have been working out and sleeping eight hours at night. I mean, I did stop watching the news six months ago. I mean, that will instill some hope. Oh. Peter says, when they ask, tell them the reason for this deep-seated hope that goes beyond whatever's happening in our lives. And can I just throw this in to... The first time that someone asks you about your hope, your faith, 
I, I view that in my life as like the first time a toddler asks you where babies come from. The first time a toddler asks that question, you don't pull out charts and graphs and give them the full explanation about sex and childbirth. Please tell me you don't give them the full explanation. Please tell me you don't. Okay? First time a toddler asks, you give the simplest explanation you can in about 10 seconds. <laughs> Somebody stopped me after the first service. Uh, and and uh, he has a salon and cuts hair and had a five-year-old ask him, said, you know, the five-year-old said, can you tell me, Mr. Jim, uh, about sex? Because I've asked my mom and she won't. And he was like, oh, my gosh. And the mom was there going, and he said, well, sex is, you know, one person's a boy and one is a girl. And that's the difference. You know, somebody's a boy and somebody's a girl. And that's what sex means. And the kid went, oh. And he went, Phew. You don't give a full explanation to a toddler. You just give them what they can handle. And it starts a conversation that goes on for a long time. When somebody asks you about the reason for your hope for the first time, you don't back up and dump the whole theological truck on them. A little snippet. Listen for questions. Begin a dialogue that may last for months or years. Don't overwhelm them. I think that's why Peter goes on to say in this passage, that we're supposed to seize these opportunities with grace. Godly people will speak up about their hope in Jesus, but they'll do it with gentleness and respect for the other person. At no point in our life with Christ do we have the right or the privilege of getting ugly or defensive when we talk about our hope. Now, we don't need to conceal or compromise the fact that we have faith. But at the same time, we don't get to get ugly about it and bash people in what we say or what we write. We do it in a way that when all is said and done, we've done it with gentleness and respect. We have done it the way that Jesus would do. And we have a clear conscience about it. We do it with grace as we pursue godliness. I, uh, I would assume that most of you, like me, have been wrapped up in the Olympics for the last 10 days. Anybody that hasn't really, you should crawl out, of your, out from under your rock every four years and check into it a little bit. Because I'm, I'm not caught up in all of the athletic events, but there are some amazing stories around the athletes. One of them that caught my attention this past week is of a gymnast. And uh, her name is Oksana. I will not, because she's from Eastern Europe, I will not attempt to pronounce her last name. I won't put it on the screen either, uh, but just suffice it to say that if you used it in Scrabble, the unique combination of vowels and consonants would win you the game. I'll just leave it at that. 
I shouldn't have to introduce her to you because she has been a part of every Olympic gymnastic competition in the Summer Olympics since Barcelona in 1992. 1992. She competed in the Olympics in 1992, five years before Simone Biles was born. So just put that in perspective. She is 41 years old. She has a 17-year-old son who is older than Simone Biles. I mean, let's just, let's just be honest about this. And she's not from one of those countries where she's still competing at 41 because nobody else can even spell gymnastics, right? Okay? She is a decorated athlete. In 92, she won a gold medal with the Russian team. In 2008, she won an individual silver with the team from Germany. And today, today, you want to watch something? Today, she will be competing in the individual events, having qualified, having qualified for the vault as the fifth best athlete in the world at 41. At 41. What'd you do with your summer? How is it possible to compete at that level at 41? I mean, I get it with some of the sports in the Olympics. I mean, like, you could do it in the equestrian events because the horse is young and you're old and all you do is hang on, right? Okay? Um, sorry, anybody that loves horses, I'm going to get emails. And I, I, I'm sorry, God forgive me. But in gymnastics, seriously, at 41? Uh, Oksana did an interview last month and she showed she's got a great sense of humor with this too. She said, I don't know how this is possible myself either. Seriously. I mean, around the gym they call me grandma, but when it comes to competition, we're all equals, whether you're 17 or 40. I love that she fudged on her age just a little bit. And then she said, but it is a pity that they don't give points for your age. You know, I promise you that over the last two plus decades that she's been competing, there have been a lot of things that have competed for her attention. But she has stayed clearly focused. She's had this dogged determination on the goal of returning to the Olympics just one more time. Just one more time. Just one more time. She has endured every practice, every setback, every injury, every hardship for the hope that's set in front of her. I am also convinced that it will be just like that for us in our pursuit of godliness. If we want to go deeper in our life with God, if we want to be done with those things that keep us from having a deeper life with God, that constantly set us back, it is going to take that single-mindedness, that dogged determination to pursue God and have Him at the center of our lives. It's going to take a focus like the Hebrews 
Hebrew writer says when he writes, let's run the race with endurance, the race that God set before us. And we can do this. We do it by keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the champion who both initiated and perfects our faith.